0: Chapter 32 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 32 Exploration of the Desert Island. On the following day, the 11th of December, a rather high sea was running, so I saw it would be impossible to effect a landing. But I coasted along the shore, this time in a southerly direction to prospect. I satisfied myself that Southwest Bay was the best, if not the only, portion of the island that afforded facilities for landing. One's foot, once on shore there, it would be easy to ascend the ravine above the cascade to the forest-clad domes above, and thence to descend to the fertile vales that are rumored to exist on the windward side of the island. So much I could perceive from the falcon's deck— I have described further back the little promontory or natural jetty of coral formation near the cascade that juts out beyond the breakers. It was on that I determined to land as soon as the sea should go down. Coasting this day to the southward, I was astonished to discover what really magnificent scenery this little island contains. Passing southwest point, a low, narrow isthmus, terminating seawards in a small, fantastic hill of basaltic columns, we opened out an extensive gulp, narrow at its entrance, shut in by two stupendous precipices, but broadening within. The sea, even in this sheltered fjord, was tumultuous, and dashed furiously on the rocky islets that thickly covered its surface. The volcanic shores appalled the fancy with their strange forms and forbidding appearance. To the back of this gulf were lofty mountains, among others the sugar-loaf. Passing this nameless gulf, that probably no keel of boat had ever disturbed, we came to another and still stranger fjord that caused an exclamation to burst from both of us, when it suddenly and unexpectedly opened before us, framed as it was, picturesquely by a great arch in the cliffs. This was a deeper inlet than the other. Surrounded like it by fantastic rocks, its further extremity yet presented a most inviting appearance, for there a beautiful beach of golden sand fringed the white foam of the perpetually breaking sea. Above this rose gentle slopes of verdure, of what nature we could not distinguish. Behind all rose steep, bare mountains, the great square bluff of South Cape, or Noah's Ark as I named it from its shape resembling that of the toy of our childhood, towering to the right. To land here would be delightful, so we penetrated the gulf for some way, but, alas, we soon had to abandon the attempt, for the bottom was everywhere sown with rocks, some rising above the sea as islands, others just awash, and these latter were a source of great danger to us. For at times, as our boat sank down into the hollow between two waves, We were horrified to perceive through the clear blue water some sharp rocks just beneath us, onto which we were rapidly falling, appearing, though, as if itself were rising upwards to pierce our fragile craft. The danger from this cause was so great that we found ourselves obliged to reluctantly return, having feasted our eyes on the strangest and grandest scenery but having convinced ourselves of the impracticability of landing in any of these rough and rock-sown fjords to the southward of Trinidad. On the next day, the 12th of December, success crowned our efforts, our perseverance was at last rewarded, and we landed in Southwest Bay without any difficulty whatever. It was a glorious day, hot indeed, for it was midsummer in this latitude, and the fierce tropical sun was vertical at midday. The wind had almost altogether fallen away, and it was very apparent from the falcon's deck that there was far less surf on the shore than on any day hitherto. I determined now to make a final attempt at an exploration of this island, and of course chose the cook to be my companion. The boy also volunteered to join us, and was so eager that I foolishly consented to his doing so, For, though now seventeen years of age, he was not strong enough to endure the fatigues we were about to encounter among these burning crags and stifling ravines, and, as the sequel showed, was considerably knocked up by his journey, though behaving pluckily enough throughout. We did not wish to encumber ourselves with much baggage, so, in addition to the clothes we wore, we carried between us three days' rations of biscuit a cake of tobacco, a bottle of rum, a rifle, and a hatchet. The mate and Panessa rode us off to the coral jetty by the cascade, which I have described, and we were all astonished at the ease with which we effected a landing. The water was almost smooth. The rock, being of coral formation, offered so many irregularities of surface that we had no difficulty in climbing on it and scrambling along its summit to the beach. Having seen us safely on shore, the mate and Panissa wished us a prosperous journey and rowed back to the vessel. I have before described the aspect of the ravine at whose foot we now found ourselves. A small stream finds its way down to the sea, terminating its course in a cascade of some height. On reaching this stream, we found its waters to be deliciously clear and cool, as indeed is all the water of Trinidad. We slowly toiled up the ravine, and wearisome work it was, sometimes on one side, sometimes on the other of the watercourse, at times floundering through it, according as one or the other offered the safest and easiest route. The ascent was steeper than we had anticipated, and great rocks fallen from above offered constant obstructions. The dead trunks of trees everywhere crossed the stream— of vegetation, there was at first none but a wiry long grass which covered the soil wherever there was any. But after we had ascended a considerable distance, we came across these beautiful products of the tropics, the tree ferns. At first, of small growth, they filled up the hollow of the stream only, having exactly the appearance of our common English fern but higher up we found them extending their fan-like masses of vivid green leaves from the summits of lofty trunks. At last we reached the summit of the ravine, and were on the call, for such it was, a gentle depression between two mountains, and here found ourselves in the midst of a very different nature, and enjoyed the loveliness of a scene such as we little guessed stern Trinidad concealed within its encircling walls of wild crags. For now we saw no rocks. We were walking on a soil, powdery and soft and dry, into which our feet sank. The mountain that rose above us on our left was a gentle dome of similar soil, and all was covered with a rich and beautiful vegetation. We were walking through a dense grove of tree ferns, whose branches, meeting overhead like cathedral aisles, allowed but a subdued light to fall on the soft floor below, where millions of land crabs crawled about for these hideous beasts swarm on this island, even to the mountaintops. Other life there was none, not even insect. A gentle breeze blew over the call from the windward side of the island, very grateful to us after our ascent to the hot, windless ravine. The scene, with its fresh greens, seemed very beautiful to us at the time, as beautiful as anything we had ever seen. But... After a month on the barren sea, and after the contrast of the dreary coast scenery beneath us, any vegetation could not but seem very beautiful. On the summit of the mountain, there appeared to be some other tree growing with a darker foliage, but we left the inspection of this for our return journey, for we wished, without delay, to descend to the windward side of the island, which seemed to hold out a magic attraction for us. We expected, on very slight, if any, grounds, to make all sorts of valuable discoveries in that direction. We reached the summit of the call and looked down upon the eastern side of the island. A magnificent view stretched before us. From our great height, we overlooked the mountains, ravines, and fjords, a wonderful panorama of strikingly contrasting or rather discordant colors. Dark, barren peaks towered up all around, huge pyramidal cylinders of burnt rock. These were based on gigantic couloirs or slopes of volcanic debris of a bright, ruddy color. These again were continued toward the sea by downs of vivid green that in their turn sloped down to bays whose beaches were of the most brilliant white sand. Rugged promontories of coal-black rock divided these bays, and the sea for far out was studded with similarly black islets, onto which the sea broke furiously. Beyond the white foam lay the blue Atlantic, on whose far horizon rose three small islands, which we recognized as the Martin Vos, and which are distant from Trinidad about 26 miles. From the summit of Trinidad, we obtained several extensive views along the windward coast, and everywhere it seemed that landing in any description of boat was quite out of the question. This is not a clean coast, as is that to leeward, but a foul with many outlying reefs and rocks, while the surface is always much more dangerous, for the swell raised by the perpetually blowing southeast trade wind breaks on this shore, the first obstacle it has met after crossing thousands of miles of ocean. I was much impressed by the strange nature of the scenery which was such as I had never seen before, though common enough, perhaps, in some volcanic districts, there was indeed something awful in the appearance of this island, with its chaotic masses of rock and unearthly lurid debris. After a halt and frugal meal under the shade of the tree ferns, we proceeded to follow the ridge of the mountain in search of some easy way by which to descend to the seashore. Half a dozen times we pursued some likely-looking route until stopped by the edge of some precipice that compelled us to wearily retrace our steps. On one occasion, we clambered down a long slope of black debris, recalling to one's memory the magic mountain of black rolling stones described in the Arabian Nights. This brought us to the bottom of a steep ravine. Advancing some way down this, we reached a spot where it fell precipitously into the depths of utter darkness, and we had to clamber all the way back up again. At last we came to where a red mountain of loose stones and debris sloped gradually towards the sea, and seemed to join on to the green downs below, no precipice intervening. The day was now far advanced, and we were anxious to reach a stream by which to bivouac for the night, for we were now weary and very thirsty, having come across no water since leaving the ravine of Southwest Bay. Therefore, we walked as fast as we could over the rolling stones of this mountain, hoping in an hour at the outside to reach the beach. Since leaving the fern groves, we had seen no vegetation, but after progressing now some way down, we found the volcanic soil covered with a plant whose name I know not, spreading far and wide with rope-like creepers, bearing large leaves, pink flowers, and a bean about the size of a haricot. This was the vivid green vegetation that we had distinguished from the summit of the island. We were now fated to meet a great disappointment. This hill terminated in a precipitous wall of rock, which it was quite impossible to descend. So we had to turn back once more. We were now in a real mess. Southwest Bay, with its water, was many hours of weary climbing from us. Weak and thirsty as we were, we could not reach it, At any rate, the boy could not, for he now altogether collapsed and said he could not walk another step and would stay where he was. But move on we must. To stay where we were for the night meant death. After a few more hours' deprivation of water, not one of us could have made an effort to save his life. So, encouraging and pulling the boy along, we commenced to very painfully drag ourselves back. Fearful work up those loose stones that rolled down on us as if to press us back and with the soil slipping away from under our feet at each step. I soon saw that we could never reach southwest bay and must make an effort to find water nearer. This mountain was a projecting spur from the central mass and divided two ravines from each other. I thought it highly probable that a stream flowed down the ravine which was to our left and suggested to the cook that we try to descend to it. The debris on which we stood sloped down at a steep angle to the depths of this gorge, but the bottom of it we could not see. On its other side rose steep precipices of black rock. The cook thought a moment or so, looked at the boy who was lying on his back, pale and breathing hard, and said, I think we had better try it. He saw the difficulties and dangers of the plan as clearly as myself, but also saw it was our only chance. So we stirred up the boy and commenced the descent. At first it was easy enough, like an ordinary moraine in the Alps, but at every step the decline became steeper, until at last we had to lie on our backs and progress inch by inch with the greatest caution. To have slid a yard, would have meant a rush ever increasing in rapidity into the depths below, a certain death. This mountain was not composed merely of loose debris, or it could not have sloped at so steep an angle. It seemed rather to be a mass of rotten, or rather burnt rock, exceedingly brittle and breaking away when grasped in lumps, whose regular mathematical forms denoted the fiery ordeal the whole had been subjected to. It was but in places that the debris covered the slopes in layers of any thickness. So it was that this treacherous mass, in consequence of its semi-consolidated state, preserved an angle steeper than would be possible in inclines of loose stones or earth, at the same time offering no firmer support to hand or foot than would so much sand. We named this Mount Rotten. Not while we were on it, though— for then we respected it too much to call it any names. It soon became apparent to me that to reascend this mountain would be quite impossible. To descend safely consisted of allowing oneself to slide down a few inches at a time with the least possible disturbance of the debris. But one ascending could not avoid disturbing these rolling masses, and nowhere would the rock where it jutted out have supported his foot. It was no better than so much dried mud." Thus, if we found, as we might easily do, our further progress barred by precipices, a most awful fate was before us, for there we should have to remain lying on the bare stones until we died of thirst or fell over the edge. Our position was certainly a dangerous one, and we progressed slowly in silence, startled occasionally by the sound of a shower of rolling stones caused by the movement of one or the other of us, when we would stop, dig our elbows into the earth, and wait a moment or so, fearful to hear the sound followed by another and more terrible one. Small, but not on that account less dangerous, precipices occurred occasionally on this slope, to avoid and go around which we had to work our way sideways, a difficult proceeding. But, by degrees, we approached the bottom without any accident, and now found that for the last 200 feet or so, we had to descend a rugged cliff of firm black rock. The foundations, at any rate, of the rotten mountain were solid. These rocks, supposing no great difficulties to us, we reached the bottom of the ravine, and there indeed over the black stones flowed a tiny stream of water. In our joy at this, we in a moment forgot all our fatigues and dangers and lay down with our faces in the shallow current, taking deep draughts until our fearful thirst was quite assuaged. After this, we lit a great fire of the dead trees that lay thickly around us, dined off biscuit and roast crabs, and slept soundly enough in spite of the drizzling rain that fell throughout the night. We were so happy and comfortable having found water, the only thing we cared for just then, that how we were to get out of this ravine never troubled our heads in the least. And yet, we certainly seem to have descended into a very prison from which escape was impossible. There can be but four ways of getting out of a gorge. To descend it, ascend it, or climb one of its two sides. Now, to climb up the side we had come down the rotten mountain, I have already explained, was quite impossible. The opposite side was formed a precipice above precipice of bare black rock, rising to a great height. That, too, was evidently not accessible. To descend the ravine was likewise quite out of the question, for just below our encampment, the stream fell over a sheer wall of rock quite a hundred feet high. There was but one chance of escape left for us, that of ascending the ravine, and that, too, appeared from our encampment to offer insurmountable difficulties. Great rocks, fallen from above, filled up the narrow bottom of the defile, in places opposing steep walls to our progress, and we could perceive that, higher up, the stream fell in a cascade over a precipice seemingly similar to that below us, and about 30 feet in height. We felt fatigued, stiff, and ill when we woke the next morning, but commenced our difficult march, or rather climb, at daybreak. We had to exercise some ingenuity in getting over the steep, fallen rocks that blocked our path. We found the dead trees of great use to us here, and when we came to the foot of the precipice, I have mentioned, we found means of scaling it by piling the timber up against it, a proceeding that occupied us a considerable time. I believe that we should never have escaped from this ravine had it not been for the adventitious profusion of these trees. After a time, our progress became easier, and, emerging from the ravine, We were once more on the gently sloping ridges of the central mountain mass, where all the ravines have their heads. Proceeding along this ridge to the northward, and so still further away from the southwest bay, we continued to search for some practicable way of reaching the coast, for notwithstanding our yesterday's failures, we were not inclined to abandon our project. However, I determined not to allow our party to travel more than a certain distance away from water, for I dreaded a repetition of the previous evening's adventures. Besides, the day was cloudless and windless, and the heat was intense. It was a genuine tropical midsummer day. We soon came to the head of a ravine that seemed to promise a way to the beach. It was a gloomy gorge, with sides formed of black rocks piled on each other in chaotic masses. A small stream trickled down it. We clambered down from one big stone to another without much difficulty. After proceeding some way, the scenery became wilder and the rocks higher and steeper. Far below us, we saw the white beach with the blue sea beyond it, but we scarcely hoped to reach it, expecting sooner or later to find ourselves on the edge of one of the usual precipices that had already so often thwarted us. Lower down, we found that the ravine widened, and a wiry grass grew in patches by the waterside. Of other vegetation, there was none, save, of course, the never-failing dead trees. Here, the land crabs swarmed like ants on an anthill, huge beasts, some of them, of a bright saffron color. The birds, too, were in the ravine in greater numbers than on any other part of the island. It was evidently the breeding place of one particular species— not the pretty kittywakes that inhabited Southwest Bay, but large, snow-white, fluffy, awkward creatures. Sitting on their eggs, tending their young or sleeping, they covered all the stones. The whole valley stank of the fish on which they fed, and foul as the fabled harpies in their manners, they dropped morsels of rotten fish from their mouths when we approached and attacked us with fury. We had to beat them off with the weapons which we carried— And let me say that it is no joke to have to defend oneself from a half-dozen or so of these angry mothers flapping, pecking, and screeching about one's head altogether. We had even to go round and avoid spots where they were the thickest. Certainly, the whole nature, live or dead, of this lonely island has something uncanny about it that dismays and appalls the imagination. This ravine, with its black rocks, varied occasionally by red volcanic debris, its strange vegetation of dead trees throwing out their skeleton arms and its inhabitants' savage foul birds and the still more offensive-looking land crabs struck us as having a particularly ghastly and spirit-depressing appearance. Among such scenery, one felt as if anything horrible might happen at any moment and a vague feeling of insecurity seized the mind. We descended the ravine until we reached its termination which was on an extensive down of soft red earth, covered with a creeping bean I have described before, and with purslane, which we of course ate eagerly. The stream that had accompanied us down the ravine here left us, sucked up by the thirsty earth, so we had to abandon it, but not unreluctantly, for it was now oppressively hot, and we were tormented with a perpetual thirst. We discovered that there was nothing to prevent our descent from this down to the beach, and soon found ourselves walking over the fine white sands. We had at last succeeded in reaching the windward side of Trinidad. We were on a bay to the northeast of the island, so proceeded to follow the shore towards the south as the more fertile and inviting country lay in that direction. Thus we passed by the mouths of the different defiles that we had vainly attempted to descend on the previous day. A broad margin of flat land, red earth, and then sands extends between the mountains of this side of the island and the sea, not as in the case on the leeward side, where the mountains generally fall sheer into the sea. Again, on this side the mountains terminate in great slopes of debris and downs, so that the streams are absorbed far up and never reach the shore. We traveled along the beach from sandy bay to sandy bay, the mountains towering on our right and the sea breaking on the coral reefs on our left, spurs thrown out by the mountains divided bay from bay, some a bare rock, some covered with sand, but all easy to cross. And now we notice that this coast, though more beautiful seeming from the sea with its green downs, was, in reality, a far less hospitable one for the shipwrecked mariner than would be the bleaker leeward coast. For, with the exception of the ravine we had descended, it was clear to us that no route lay from here up the mountains, precipices occurred everywhere above the domes of debris, and no issue of water was attainable from the beach. We met plenty to attract our attention as we walked along the glaring sands and hot coral rocks. Every pool was full of quaint creatures, rainbow-colored fish, bright-spotted crabs, and azure polypi. And snakes, striped like wasps or gold-speckled, crawled among the stones. We picked up some beautiful specimens of coral and shells. We came across the tracks of turtle. They were evidently in the habit of visiting these sands at night, and we promised ourselves some sport later on. But first... We must find water by which to encamp, and of this we saw no signs, not even that left by rains in the hollows of the rocks. We wandered on, opening out bay after bay for some hours, till on traversing a rocky promontory we came to an extensive gulf, backed on its further side by the huge mass of Sugarloaf Mountain. Great walls of rock surrounded it and altogether it was as inhospitable-looking a place as shipwrecked sailor was ever cast on. Now all the shore on this gulf was strewed with wreckage. Along the whole of this windward coast we had perceived many spars, barrels, timbers, and other remains of vessels, but here they were in much larger quantity than elsewhere. So we named this dreary spot Wreck Bay. From its position in the region of the southeast trade winds, a vast amount of drift and many derelict vessels must of a necessity be driven on to the windward coast of Trinidad, and indeed there was a marvelous accumulation. Judging from its appearance, some of this timber must have lain here for hundreds of years, and doubtlessly this beach preserves naval remains of every age since the first vessels doubled the Cape of Good Hope. Apart from masts, barrels, and other driftage, we observed that more than one vessel, derelict doubtlessly, had been driven bodily on to the island, for we frequently saw two circular rows of ribs rising from the sand, with a corroded bolt sticking in them here and there, showing where the frame of some fine old ship lay buried. What struck me as remarkable was that some of this wreckage had been cast up a great distance above what I judged to be high-water mark. Far up, jammed between two rocks, I perceived a huge iron beam that must have weighed many tons. The explanation probably is that Trinidad, like several other lone-lying South Atlantic islands, notably St. Helena and Fernando Noronha, is subject to that terrible phenomenon known as the rollers. Those who have witnessed this describe how, on a fine clear day, when the winds are still and the ocean smooth, of a sudden the waters in the offing are observed to become disturbed. Billow after billow advances to the shore, gradually increasing in magnitude until at last the waters are piled up in mountains far higher than the hugest storm waves that rush on to shore with fearful impetuosity, driving from their anchors any vessels that they may encounter and hurling them far up on the land beyond the reach of the highest spring tides." Distant hurricanes and submarine volcanic action are both suggested as the causes of this phenomenon. Casting a line into the pools left by the ebbing tide, we soon caught a much larger quantity of fish than we could carry with us, so we called a halt, lit a fire of driftwood under the skeleton bows of a small vessel, and prepared a lunch of roast fish that was indeed excellent but which we should have enjoyed all the more had we possessed water to wash it down with. We kept our thirst down to a certain extent this day by constantly damping our clothes with seawater. The boy and the cook became quite excited on seeing all these wrecks and proceeded to hunt about for any valuables that might have been cast up by the sea. They found nothing but an empty Akshaw brandy bottle and a tin of Australian meat which, on being opened, proved to be bad. Valuables there doubtlessly are buried among the sands. The heavier portion of the cargoes of these wrecks must still be here. That ancient vessel under whose bows we were lunching may have been some old Dutch East India man or Spanish galleon from Peru, and untold doubloons and bars of precious metal may have lain hidden within a few yards of us. Had there been water anywhere near this bay— We should certainly have dug into some of these wrecks, but water there was none within a half a day's journey. Had we even come across a sound barrel, we could have filled it from the stream we had left in the morning and carried it to the scene of our operations. We crossed over the promontory that divided Wreck Bay from the one next to it to the southward and found ourselves at the foot of Noah's Ark Mountain. There was no water flowing down its perpendicular slopes. Our further progress was barred by a precipitous mountain running out into the sea, but we were now to the extreme south of the island, and all beyond this we had already explored. The next gulf was the one I had visited in the boat four days back, but on whose shore I had been unable to land in consequence of the dangerous outlying rocks. All we could do now was to return to our stream in the harpy inhabited ravine and camp by it for the night. So, loading ourselves with as many fish and fine sea crabs as we could carry, we trudged wearily back across the sands and did not reach the foot of the gorge until dusk. Ascending it until we came to a suitable spot, we pitched our camp and lit a great fire. The stream formed a little pool just below in which I had a most delicious and refreshing bath while dinner was cooking. An excellent dinner it was. Three kinds of fish, biscuit, rum, and unlimited water, not to forget the pipes of tobacco to finish up with. More weird than even in the morning was the appearance of this ravine now that the shades of night were falling. It was just such a scene as Doré's pencil would have done justice to. A desert of black stones over which hung a magic spell that killed all vegetation, so that trees rose as gaunt, leafless skeletons and haunted by evil spirits in the shape of the foul birds brooding on every rock and stone, and the abominable reptiles, the land crabs. The huge mass of black crags that towered at the head of the gloomy defile was exactly what one would picture as the enchanted castle of the evil magician, within sight of which all vegetation withered, looking from over the desolate valley of ruins, to the barren shore strewed with its sad wreckage and the wild ocean beyond. We, at our encampment, picturesque enough in the firelight, yet hardly realized my idea of the virtuous knights about to release the damosel imprisoned in the castle overhead. But the land crabs certainly looked their part of goblin guardians of the approaches to the wicked magician's fastness. They were fearful as the firelight fell on their yellow, cynical faces, fixed as that of the sphinx, but fixed in a horrid grin. Those who observed this foulest species of crab will know my meaning. Smelling the fish we were cooking, they came down the mountains in thousands upon us. We threw them some lumps of fish, which they devoured with crab-like slowness, yet perseverance. It is a ghastly sight, a land crab at its dinner. A huge beast was standing a yard from me. I gave him a portion of fish and watched him. He looked at me straight in the face with his outstarting eyes and proceeded with his two front claws to tear up his food, bringing bits of it to his mouth with one claw as with a fork. But all this while he never looked at what he was doing. His face was fixed in one position, staring at me. And when I looked around, lo, there were half a dozen others all steadily feeding but with immovable heads turned to me with that fixed, basilisk stare. It was indeed horrible, and the effect was nightmarish in the extreme. While we slept that night, they attacked us, and would certainly have devoured us had we not awoke, and they did eat holes in our clothes. One of us had to keep watch, so as to drive them from the other two, otherwise we should have had no sleep. Imagine a sailor cast alone on this coast, Weary yet unable to sleep a moment on account of these ferocious creatures. After a few days of an existence full of horror, he would die raving mad and then be consumed in an hour by his foes. In all Dante's inferno, there is no more horrible a suggestion of punishment than this. On the morrow, after an early breakfast of cold fish and water, we had finished our rum, we proceeded to reascend the ravine. When we emerged from it, on the top of the plateau where the tree ferns grew, the green dome that forms the culminating point of the island lay in front of us. I wished to explore the mountains so as to determine the nature of the vegetation that covered its slopes, also to discover the pigs and goats that, if they existed at all on Trinidad, would most possibly be found in this fertile district. A scramble of a little more than half an hour brought us to the summit of the dome. We found it to be everywhere covered with a dense grove of beautiful tree ferns and a shrub-like myrtle, which I satisfied myself was not the young growth of the species of tree whose dead specimens were strewn over the whole island. These were still a mystery. Having once robed all of Trinidad with one glorious forest, they had of a sudden perished as of a plague, leaving no young or seeds behind them. The once vigorous race was now Utterly extinct. Of pigs and goats, we also found no traces whatever. They too, possibly like the old trees of hard red wood, had died out, leaving the island to the birds and foul crabs that now alone inhabit it. We now stood on the culminating point of Trinidad and held the council as we looked down on the calm ocean and the little falcon appearing like a child's toy boat as she lay at anchor so far below we decided that we should at once proceed to the southwest bay and embark on our comfortable craft. We had had enough of this lone rock of ocean and wished to shake the dust of it from off our feet. Besides, we were worn, weak, and had consumed all our stores. At any rate, we had succeeded in very thoroughly exploring the island and had made ourselves acquainted with all its resources, or rather lack of resources, We had certainly undergone much fatigue and no little peril, without any adequate result. In the course of our explorations, we had been nearly drowned, had incurred much risk of perishing from thirst, and had run very near shave of losing our lives among the mountains. The game had indeed not been worth the candle. But, of course, we anticipated nothing of all of this when we started. We must now satisfy ourselves with the empty glory of having beaten the island, notwithstanding its vigorous defense and our frequent repulses. And as I had before hinted, treasures might be dug from the wrecks on the windward sands. Let some other enterprising yachtsman sail in search of them. I certainly will not, having had quite enough of Trinidad. These, or something like these, were our deliberations on the mountaintop. Then, resuming our march, we proceeded to the head of the southwest ravine, descended it, reached the coral jetty, and lit a fire to attract the attention of the falcon. Perceiving us, Panissa rowed off for us in the boat. The water being very smooth, we got into it without difficulty, and were soon, weary yet joyful, reposing ourselves in the snug little vessel, this night to dine luxuriously indeed, and sleep undisturbed by land crabs. I forgot to say that we wrote a record of our adventures on a piece of paper, and, enclosing it in our empty rum bottle, left it in the hollow of a stone just above the cascade. Note, in the winter of 1884 85, since the publication of this book, an expedition started from the Tyne in search of supposed hidden treasure on Trinidad. A ship's captain, who has traded to the Tyne for some years, obtained plans and papers relating to the hidden treasure from an old sailor who had been a pirate in his youth and had seen the wealth buried. The vessel reached Trinidad. A landing was effected with some difficulty, but the treasure was not discovered. End of chapter 32